0: This e-pulmonology review program is presented by DKP Med Radio.
1: So I think generally it's better if the workup for pH proceeds in a systematic fashion at a pH center if there's suspicion for pH. And the latest guidelines in 2022 ESC ERS guidelines, those latest guidelines reinforce this concept and they formally recommend referral to a pH center for a comprehensive right heart catheterization if there's echocardiographically probable pH. And a peak tricuspid regurgitant velocity at greater than 2.8 meters per second is suggestive of that.
0: Pulmonary hypertension in the clinic. The revised classifications. Welcome to ePulmonology Review. pH, pulmonary hypertension. It's shortness of breath, fatigue, It's high blood pressure in the lungs caused by narrowed blood vessels, producing tachycardia, bounding pulse. It's one of the five pulmonary hypertension groups, and it's questions. How do I accurately diagnose pH? How do I effectively treat it? What do I need to know to make the differential? To answer some of these questions, we're joined today by Dr. Katherine Simpson. Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, epulmonologyreview.org, and select the Volume 3, Issue 2 link. I'm Bob Busker, DKB Med Editorial Director and Managing Editor of ePulmonology Review. Dr. Simpson, thank you for joining us today. It's very nice to be here. Our first key learning point focuses on the 2022 ESC-ERS guidelines, which revised the classification of pulmonary hypertension, as well as lowering the threshold for defining it. So with that in mind, if you would please, doctor, take us to the clinic with a patient scenario. Sure,
1: I'd be happy to. So, the first patient to discuss with you today was a 39 year old woman who was referred to me in June of 2021. Um, And at that point, she'd actually undergone an extensive evaluation already. She'd had a right heart catheterization in the community. Her story started in late 2020. So, she'd been well until December of that year. And then around then, she noticed that she became short of breath, just doing ordinary tours around the house. And then, in the six months between the onset of her symptoms and her referral to me, She saw her primary care physician and she started a pretty thorough evaluation. She also saw a cardiologist and a pulmonologist, and they had ordered several tests. So she had a chest x ray, and that was unremarkable. And she had a transthoracic echo that showed normal right sided chambers, but she did have a peak tricuspid regurgitant velocity greater than 2.8 meters per second. And we'll come back to that. She had pulmonary function tests, those showed an isolated reduction in her diffusing capacity for carbon monoxide. And that prompted additional concern for. For pulmonary vascular disease. And that led to the right heart catheterization. So she'd had the right heart cast. She came um, and the results in hand, those showed severe precapillary pH. She had a mean PA pressure of 50 millimeters of mercury. She had a pulmonary vascular resistance of 15 Woods units. And thankfully, she had a preserved cardiac output. So when she came to the visit, she came with her mom. And her mom was really intent on my providing a diagnosis at that point. So the referring physicians, her PCP, her cardiologist, they told her that. I would be the one that would be able to render a diagnosis and it was important to come to the ph clinic to get a diagnosis and to begin treatment and they were understandably pretty anxious to start
0: and so were you able to make a diagnosis at this point
1: no so she and her mother were both expecting to receive a diagnosis that day in my office of pulmonary arterial hypertension or PAH. but in order for me to make that diagnosis more information was needed So, precapillary pH doesn't necessarily equal PAH, although it's part of the definition. So, very importantly, PAH is precapillary pH, but in the absence of significant heart disease, lung disease, or thromboembolic disease. And that's well-established. That's based on the ESC-ERS guidelines that were most recently released in 2022 and previous iterations of those guidelines. So, we really needed additional data in order to exclude those conditions and to evaluate for associated conditions.
0: So take us through the process, if you would, please.
1: So really, it starts with additional history taking. So asking more questions. So I asked her about her other medical problems. Specifically, I asked her if she experienced any signs or symptoms of connective tissue disease, because that's an associated condition with pH. I asked her her medical history and what medicines she was taking. And then I got an exposure history. So anything unusual that she'd be exposed to in the workplace, uh, recreationally. asked her about any drugs and toxins that she might have been exposed to. And then it's also very important to get a sleep history. Um, So after that history taking, I ordered some pretty straightforward tests. I ordered blood tests known as serologies for various connective tissue diseases. Um, The most important one there is an ANA. I ordered an HIV antibody. She didn't have one on file. I ordered a ventilation perfusion scan, which is also known as a VT scan. Um, I I updated her echocardiogram. I wanted an additional echocardiogram with agitated saline, or it's also known as a bubble study, ordered nocturnal oximetry, and then finally a six-minute walk test. And then I had to have a conversation with her and her mother. So she had not had vasoreactivity testing done at her initial right heart catheterization. And vasoreactivity testing is indicated if idiopathic PAH, drug or toxin-associated PAH, or heritable PAH are highest on the differential at the time of right heart cath. So I discussed with her that, unfortunately, we'd have to repeat her right heart cath with vasoreactivity testing if the other tests that I ordered returned negative, tests that that might point out an association with connective tissue disease, for instance. Um, So if if those tests all returned and my highest suspicion was for those other forms of PAH, we were going to have to repeat a cath for vaso-reactivity testing.
0: So the results of this extra testing, what did you learn that could help you secure a diagnosis?
1: So her six-minute walk test and her nocturnal oximetry both indicated that she needed supplemental oxygen during sleep and with exertion. And we actually have recent data that suggests we under-recognize uh, exertional and nocturnal hypoxemia. There was a, an article published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2022 um, from the omics study group. And, and that that article really shows very nicely that um, that we really under-recognize hypoxemia at night that's not related to sleep apnea. So this constitutes important supportive care for this patient. So we certainly started her on supplemental oxygen. I really didn't gather any new information from history taking. Um, there was nothing else that was apparent or, or caught my attention. Her connective tissue disease serologies were, were negative. Her HIV antibody was, was negative. Her VQ, we didn't see any mismatch perfusion defects, so also negative. But all those negative tests are actually helpful because it rules out other forms of pH. It crosses associated conditions like connective tissue disease off the list. Um, and for me, it put idiopathic pH or IPAH at the very top of the differential diagnosis for her. So unfortunately, that meant that she would need vasoreactivity testing. So remember, I said that if IPAH, heritable PAH, or drug toxin-associated pH are at the top of the differential at the time of cath, patient should undergo acute vasoreactivity testing. And we arranged for that at Hopkins, and she was not vasoreactive. So finally, with all of that data in hand, we were ultimately able to arrive at a diagnosis of idiopathic PAH for her.
0: Vasoreactivity testing, wouldn't that require another right heart catheterization?
1: That's right. So acute vasoreactivity testing requires right heart catheterization. The the focus of, of vasoreactivity testing is the change in the pulmonary pressures with a vasodilator, like inhaled nitric oxide or adenosine. And so in order to perform vasoreactivity testing, you have to obtain invasive hemodynamics. I wouldn't say that we have to do this often for patients that first have a catheterization outside of our center, but we certainly don't hesitate to do it if we need to it's it's very important to identify vasoreactive patients. We treat vasoreactive patients very differently. Those patients receive high-dose calcium channel blockers as opposed to the other maybe more commonly prescribed pH-specific therapies such as phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors or endothelin receptor antagonists.
0: In general, doctor, what are the benefits of having a right heart catheterization done at a pH center?
1: So I think Generally, it's better if the workup for pH proceeds in a systematic fashion at a pH center if there's suspicion for pH. And the latest guidelines in 2022 ESC ERS guidelines, those latest guidelines reinforce this concept, and they formally recommend referral to a pH center for a comprehensive right heart catheterization if there's echocardiographically probable pH. And a peak tricuspid regurgitant velocity greater than 2.8 meters per second is suggestive of that.
0: So now, with a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, what treatment would you recommend for this patient?
1: So what I recommended for her and what I would recommend for for anyone in the situation was a combination of ambrisentan, which is an ERA or endothelium receptor antagonist, and tidalophil, which is a PDE5. So we know that combination therapy with a PDE5 inhibitor and an ERA is standard of care for patients with idiopathic PAH, drug toxin-associated PAH, or heritable PAH who are at low or intermediate risk. Um, of death and who are not vasoreactive. And that's, again, that's based on our guidelines. Um, And we learned that upfront combination therapy outperformed monotherapy back in 2015 in a a trial that was published in the New England Journal called the Ambition Trial. So we started those medicines for her. Um, we, We recommended that she continue with supplemental oxygen. As I said, that's an important element of supportive care for her. And then um, in the future, we can keep her in mind for a third agent if we need to. We, we often escalate these patients to triple combination therapy if needed, uh, if, they, if they exhibit clinical worsening.
0: Thank you, Dr. Simpson, for bringing us this case. It really illustrates how the guidance-recommended testing can lead to the most accurate diagnosis. So let's review the main points of our discussion in light of that key learning objective. What are the most important things you want our learners to take back to their practices?
1: So I think the, the topmost thing is that when the peak regurgitant velocity, or TRV, is, is higher than 2.8 meters per second, this may suggest pulmonary hypertension. So we actually look uh, in the pH community at the peak TRV, and our guidelines support that, not the RVSP. Um, really, you should be looking at the, the peak TRV. The next thing that I would say is that patients with known or suspected pH really should be referred to a pH center so they can have a comprehensive right heart catheterization with a standardized set of measurements. And I think this would avoid having to repeat catheterizations in, in patients such as ours. Um, patients with suspected drug toxin associated PAH, idiopathic PAH, or heritable PAH, if those conditions are highest on your differential going into catheterization, those patients should undergo vasoreactivity testing and they should receive high dose calcium channel blocker therapy if they're vasoreactive. Um, I, I want to point out again that precapillary pH does not equal PAH. Again, PAH is precapillary pH in the absence of left heart disease, lung disease, thromboembolic disease, and other conditions that must be systematically evaluated for. And then finally, PAH patients who are not vasoreactive and who do not have cardiopulmonary comorbidities should receive upfront combination therapy with an ERA and a pd 5 inhibitor. And as in this patient's case, the most commonly prescribed drugs are ambrisentan and fidelafil.
0: Thank you, Dr. Simpson, for that very informative case discussion. And we'll return with Dr. Katherine Simpson from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Providing the best care for your patients takes more than identifying the most relevant information. It takes expert opinion and analysis of the data, combined with expert advice about how to most effectively put that information into practice. It takes the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine e Literature Reviews top experts in their specialties, selecting the most important peer-reviewed literature, analyzing the information, and explaining what it can mean to clinical practice. E-literature reviews, independent medical education, CME, certified by Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and presented without charge by DKB Med. Welcome back to our e-pulmonology review program. We've been speaking with Dr. Katherine Simpson, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Let's turn now to our second key learning point. Inhaled triprostanol can now be considered for pH due to interstitial lung disease, or ILD. So with that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Simpson, take us to the clinic with another patient scenario.
1: So our second patient is a gentleman with Joe 1 positive anti-synthetase syndrome complicated by interstitial lung disease or ILD. And he was cared for by our ILD clinic at Johns Hopkins and then referred from the ILD clinic to my PH clinic after a hospitalization. He was hospitalized at Hopkins for volume overload. And prior to that admission, he had developed worsening dyspnea on exertion. Um, and during the hospitalization, he improved with IV diuresis. While he was admitted, the doctors taking care of him got an echocardiogram done, and that showed a peak TRV of 3.5 meters per second. So his doctors rightly suspected development of pH when they reviewed that result, and they referred him to my clinic.
0: What was your initial approach?
1: So the general approach in any case is always to assess for associated conditions and potential contributors to pulmonary hypertension, and then to optimize those as you're able to. So in this man's case, the inpatient team and his ILD providers had already taken care of a lot of the initial footwork for me. I added on a few things. So I added on a VQ scan to rule out thromboembolic disease, just just as I did with our first patient. Um, This gentleman was obese, and he complained of sleepiness. Um, And we certainly do see a fair amount of obstructive sleep apnea. So I obtained a sleep study that did show obstructive sleep apnea, and he was prescribed CPAP therapy for that, and he was adherent to that therapy. The other main task when we're evaluating these patients uh, with lung disease is to assess whether the symptoms that they're presenting with, so in this case, worsening dyspnea exertion, to assess whether the symptoms are referable to parenchymal lung disease, so it's interstitial lung disease, or to the possible emergence of pulmonary hypertension. So to that end, I ordered a ProBNP, and that test was elevated. And then I reviewed his medications, and I reviewed his pulmonary function test trends and saw that he was on stable therapy for his anti anti-sensitase syndrome. So he had been on a strong immunosuppressant, mycophenolate, mofetil, and prednisone. He'd been stable on those meds for quite some time. And his PFT trends and his oxygen requirements had been stable over the preceding few years. So again, you know, I'm trying to attend to when evaluating these patients, whether the development of pulmonary hypertension may be happening or whether the underlying lung disease may be worsening. So in this man's case, I was satisfied that there was no worsening of his underlying lung disease, his treatment was optimized, and it was reasonable to consider emergence of pulmonary hypertension.
0: But you still needed a right heart catheterization to make the diagnosis.
1: That's right. So we always move ahead to right heart catheterization. If we suspect that pulmonary hypertension is present, we can never rely on echo estimates of pulmonary pressures to diagnose pulmonary hypertension. Studies have have shown that that ECHO estimates of pulmonary pressures can both over and underestimate, particularly in chronic lung disease. So we certainly do move to right heart catheterization. And again, in patients with chronic lung disease, this decision to move forward to right heart cath is based on integrating all the available non-invasive data. So in his case, he had his ECHO that showed a high peak PRV of 3.5 meters per second. He had an elevated nt BNP. And he had a change in symptoms in the context of stability in his underlying lung disease. So we moved forward to right heart catheterization. And as with other forms of pH, we prefer that this right heart catheterization be performed at a pH center. And so he did have this done
0: at Johns Hopkins. In in our first patient scenario, you explained the reasons to perform the RHC at a pH center. Is that rationale the same for this patient?
1: So again, so for PAH, it's vasoreactivity testing tends to be the most important thing. And that that tends to be the thing that can get missed. For patients with chronic lung disease, like our second patient, we like to ensure that these patients are entirely optimized on several fronts prior to cath. So we like to make sure that they're adherent to their supplemental oxygen therapy, and that means 24 hours a day. Um, We like to make sure that they're stable on their medications, including diuretics. And when OSA is present, uh, as in this gentleman's case, we want to make sure that they're adherent to CPAP therapy. So again, the task is to optimize everything as much as possible that could potentially be contributing to elevated pulmonary pressures before going to right heart catheterization.
0: Great explanation, Dr. Simpson. So in this case, our second patient, what did the right heart catheterization show?
1: So his right heart catheterization also showed precapillary pulmonary hypertension. So in this man's case, he had a mean PA pressure of 36 millimeters of mercury. He had a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of eight millimeters of mercury. His cardiac output was 6.7 liters per minute, and his PVR was 4.2 wood units.
0: And what action did those results lead you to?
1: So again, the task here is to make a diagnosis. The the hemodynamics from right heart catheterization don't tell the whole tale. Patients still need a clinical diagnosis. So in this man's case, given his known interstitial lung disease, the data were consistent with pH due to chronic lung disease and specifically pH due to interstitial lung disease. This is considered non severe pH. So, the latest 2022 guidelines define severe pH due to chronic lung disease as PVR greater than five wood units. And that's territory where treatment considerations may be more individualized, and expert care at a pH center is especially important. Now, we finally have guideline recommended therapy for pH ILD. And this is new just in the last few years. Um, The increased trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine several years ago, and that showed that patients with pulmonary pretension due to interstitial lung disease derived uh, a benefit, a clinical benefit, from inhaled treprosanol therapy. And on the basis of that positive trial, um, this patient was prescribed inhaled treprosanol. In addition to medical therapy, there are other housekeeping things that we do for our PH patients with interstitial lung disease. So we already talked about the fact that he's on oxygen, he's receiving CPAP therapy, those things are done prior to cath. Other items for him, now that he has a known diagnosis of PHILD, we referred him to lung transplant um, clinic. We know that PH portends worse outcomes in ILD, and, and our patients are referred for lung transplantation consideration at that point when that diagnosis is made. And the other thing that we did for him was refer him to, to pulmonary rehabilitation.
0: Very interesting case, doctor. Actually, a very complicated case. But your explanation has clarified it tremendously. So, beyond our overall learning objective, our key learning point for this part of our discussion focuses on treatment with inhaled treprostinil, which can now be considered for patients with pulmonary hypertension due to interstitial lung disease. What are the key things our learner should know?
1: So, treatment with inhaled treprostinil can be considered for pH due to interstitial lung disease. That's not the case for all patients with group 3 pulmonary hypertension. Inhaled treprosanil is specifically approved for pulmonary hypertension due to interstitial lung disease. Patients with severe pH defined by a PVR greater than 5, they may require an individualized approach to treatment. So for them, it's not always the case that inhaled treprosanil is the answer. There may be some subgroups of patients for whom the increased trial failed to demonstrate benefit, and so they may not be uh, prescribed that therapy at a pH center. Patients with all forms of chronic lung disease diagnosed with pH should be referred for a lung transplant evaluation. Um, And so for us at Hopkins, that just means referring them to our lung transplant clinic, see our colleagues there. And then finally, in all patients with pH due to chronic lung disease, not just PHILD, the underlying lung disease really should be optimally treated prior to consideration of right heart catheterization. And again, that includes optimization of their pharmacotherapies, provision of supplemental oxygen to correct any hypoxemia that may be present, and treatment of any sleep disordered breathing that may be present.
0: Nice summation, doctor. Thank you. We've got a few minutes left, and I'd like to ask you, what do you see happening on the horizon for treatment of pulmonary hypertension and other lung conditions?
1: No, that's a, that's a great question. So we were very excited about inhaled treprostinil a few years ago when that trial was published and that therapy was approved. Now I would say the field is most excited about uh, a drug called sotatercept that we think is probably coming down the line soon. So, so tatercept is a novel fusion protein and it, it acts in a very unusual manner. It's actually a ligand trap. And it traps members of the TGF-beta superfamily. May not be familiar with that, but it's long been recognized that TGF-beta signaling, and that's just generally speaking, a molecular pathway, is abnormal in PH. We've known that for quite some time. So inhibition of these TGF-beta ligands by sotatercept is thought to rebalance pulmonary vascular homeostasis by inhibiting some of the things that we know are going wrong on the cellular level, like abnormally high rates of cell proliferation, inflammation in the vessel walls. So far, it's been studied just in patients with PAH, not other forms of PH. and there have been two main trials that have been published. There are others that are underway. But first, the PULSAR trial was published. That was the phase two study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that showed improvements in hemodynamics, including pulmonary vascular resistance and mean PA pressure, as well as other secondary endpoints in patients that were randomized to Sotatercept. The next trial was a phase three trial called STELLAR, and that was published much more recently also in the New England Journal. That trial showed an improvement in six-minute walk distance in patients randomized to Cetatercept. And that's we use six-minute walk distance as a surrogate for exertional tolerance, exercise capacity. So that's actually a fairly important metric to us. From both trials, we learned that there were several adverse events associated with Cetatercept. Those included epistaxis or nosebleeds, dizziness. Several patients actually developed telangiectasia in the Sotatercept group. Patients had increased hemoglobin levels, thrombocytopenia, and increased systemic blood pressure. One key thing to note about Sotatercept and one of the things that we're most excited about is that both of these trials, PULSAR and STELLAR, showed clinical improvement in PAH patients who are already on background therapy. So that's to say they were already on what we consider to be our standard of care, our conventional current pH-specific therapies. And even having been prescribed those standard therapies, they still derive benefit from adding on Sotatercept. So this, we think that this is going to be an exciting addition to the pH therapy arsenal
0: ePulmonology Review will report on this promising pulmonary agent as more information becomes available. Dr. Katherine Simpson from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise in today's ePulmonology Review program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: For ePulmonology Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at epulmonology.dkbmed.com. ePulmonology Review is supported by educational grants from Merck and & Company and Mylan Specialty LP of the Company. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Pulmonology Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for participating.